Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Whitney Humanities Center presents a lecture by Alice Jordan, professor of art history at Northern Arizona University. Her talk, The Saint-Chapelle in Paris, Kingship, Crusading, and the Legacy of Louis IX, is the fourth lecture in the 2010 series of Frankie Lectures on the Age of Cathedrals. Built by Louis IX to house the crown of thorns, portions of the true cross, and other relics of Christ's passion, the Saint-Chapelle functioned as the palace chapel of the kings of France. Among the most famous productions of the High Gothic era, the chapel's skeletal architecture, painted medallions, sculpture, and expansive stained glass windows have long occupied the attention of art historians. The Saint-Chapelle also comprised one of the most powerful artistic statements of medieval monarchic authority in Europe. The juxtaposition of the crown of thorns and the crown of France tangibly embodied the French claim to sacral kingship. The chapel's extensive, complex, and integrated imagery proffered at once a comprehensive visual discourse on the requisite attributes of a model Christian king and irrefutable proof of their realization in the person of Louis IX. Almost 50 years ago, the art historian Robert Branner described the Saint-Chapelle as a monumental reliquary, its elaborately decorated interior offering an appropriately lavish container for the precious objects it protected. Branner's oft-repeated trope framed the study of the chapel in subsequent decades. Scholars have analyzed its stylistic origins and influence, parsed its dating, and scrutinized its post-revolutionary restoration to ascertain its medieval authenticity. The Saint-Chapelle, in other words, has been studied primarily as an object, a conception encouraged by photographs typically found in art history books, which depict the chapel's jewel-like interior devoid of occupants. This characterization was recently challenged by another art historian, Willibald Sauerlander, who argues that to construe the Saint-Chapelle as a reliquary encourages an inappropriately static image of a venue that in reality composed a dynamically active and activated space. I would like to use Sauerlander's construct of the Saint-Chapelle as activated space to frame my own discussion of how and why Louis IX's chapel proved such a successful vehicle for the articulation of his own monarchic agenda. One of the primary activities that animated the Saint-Chapelle was that of liturgical performance. From the time of its consecration in 1248 until its suppression as a religious space in the wake of the French Revolution, the Saint-Chapelle witnessed the regular celebration of the mass and liturgical hours. The establishment of new feasts devoted to the acquisition of the crown of thorns in 1239 and passion relics in 1241 inspired the composition of new liturgies, the creation of which coincided with the building and decoration of the chapel itself. The canonization of Louis IX in 1297 and the translation of his relics to the Saint-Chapelle in 1306 prompted the establishment of additional feasts, which celebrated the sanctity of the very king responsible for the chapel's creation. In addition to this regular circuit of liturgical activities, the Saint-Chapelle also functioned as a locus for the celebration of special services tied to court affairs, such as state visits by foreign dignitaries and royal ceremonies, including weddings and funerals. Far from the silent, empty space, the Saint-Chapelle was regularly filled with people, processions, and music, much as it is today, routinely filled with tourists and used for public events, such as concerts. 
In a recent article entitled An Indulgence for the Visitor, the Public at the Saint-Chapelle, Meredith Cohen argued that the, that the chapel was, in fact, designed for the public as a pilgrimage site in order to encourage devotion to the French cult of kings. Cohen bases her argument on the large number of indulgences issued to those who visited the chapel and the evidence found in liturgical books, such as ordinals, which make frequent mention of public participation in the chapel's celebrations. Many texts and traditions thus figured into the public life of the Saint-Chapelle. I will discuss several of these, including the coronation ordinaries, which I believe played a central role in the initial design of the windows, and the office composed in honor of Louis IX's canonization. These general discussions will frame a closer examination of the relationship between the chapel's decoration and the liturgies composed to celebrate the acquisition of the crown of thorns, two true cross, and other relics of Christ's passion. It was, I believe, the environment created at the intersection of text and image, of liturgical performance and sacred space, which secured the Saint-Chapelle's position as the preeminent site and symbol of French kingship. Kingship has long been identified as a prominent theme of the chapel's glass ensemble. The Passion of Christ, portrayed in the axial window of the hemicycle, articulates the chapel's import as the repository of the crown of thorns. Situated within the medieval construct of sacral kingship, a tradition to which the kings of France had laid claim since the ninth century, the crown of thorns appears as the ultimate symbol of royal sovereignty, both celestial, both terrestrial and divine. Oops, sorry. The Old Testament leaders depicted in the windows are those most often invoked in the coronation ordinaries and medieval mirrors of princes as exemplars of model kingship. And uh, coronation ordinaries are the um, are texts that include the, the prayers, ceremonies, and particularly the stage directions um, involved in the coronation of a medieval king or queen. So where they moved, what happened, who did what. Um, and the Mirrors of Princes are a kind of medieval genre of self-help manual that um, advocated um, proper behavior, modeled behavior for uh, to be a good leader. I've argued elsewhere that the windows Old Testament narratives, whose expansive renderings were long dismissed as incomprehensible, in fact exhibit close compositional parallels with techniques of medieval storytelling. Through the application of rhetorical devices, such as expolitio, a technique which advocates repetition and restatement as a means of developing thematic emphases and through lines, the window's biblical narratives were recrafted into a single tale of model monarchic rule outlining a repertoire of regal activities enacted by Old Testament leaders from whom the French kings claimed spiritual descent. By analyzing the subjects most often repeated in the windows, I concluded that the biblical stories were designed to foreground five specific themes, which collectively comprise a visual essay on the subject of kingship. These include the topics of ancestry and, Diana, excuse me, ancestry and dynastic continuity, articulated in repeated scenes of marriage and women with children, the king's obligation to his subjects, illustrated by myriad scenes of Old Testament leaders conversing with the Israelites, the king's role as defender of church and realm, depicted in the repetition of battles 
and scenes of idolatry, and the crown as ideological construct, which is visualized in the extensive number of crowned figures and coronations. Both the form and content of this thematic repertoire resonate in the medieval liturgies. The cast of characters and the repeated activities relate closely to the coronation ordinates, whose prayers repeatedly exhort the new king to be as brave as Joshua, as wise as Solomon, to embrace and live these virtuous models so that he could be a new David to his people. Gabriella Spiegel has shown that this sort of secular typology served to diminish the gap between biblical past and historical present and allowed past events to, quote, live in present experience, end quote. Historians such as Joseph Strayer, John Baldwin, and William Jordan have explored the ways in which these associations fueled contemporary perceptions of the French kings as uniquely holy, the true successors to their biblical forebears, and to Christ himself. In the Saint-Chapelle, where the fusion of past and present was realized in the juxtaposition of the crown of thorns and the crown of France, such temporal and symbolic telescoping was furthered visually by the presentation of biblical history through the filter of contemporary narrative design and verbally through liturgies specific to the chapel's royal function. The new liturgies composed to celebrate the crown of thorns and passion relics address a constellation of themes comparable to those I've identified in the Saint-Chapelle windows. The liturgies draw on biblical models, articulate multivalent comparisons between the crown of thorns and the crown of France, and celebrate the realm of France, her king, and her people as the worthy heirs to and special protectors of the crown of Christ. It is important, I think, to emphasize not only the ways in which the chapel's imagery and these texts relate thematically, but the profound ways in which they relate rhetorically. The power of both resides in their ability to conflate biblical past and historical present, so as to articulate a tangible continuation of sacred history in contemporary life. Additional artistic devices, such as outfitting biblical characters with 13th century costumes and accessories, further this temporal conflation. Whereas the, the coronation liturgies celebrate the king himself, the liturgies and hymns composed in honor of the crown of thorns focus more broadly on the realm of France and its people. And just what you're looking, what you're looking at here is a uh, scenes from what is called, has traditionally been called the relics window, which depicts among other things, the actual translation of the crown of thorns uh, from Sens to Paris. Uh, and so here you have a general view um, showing uh, Louis IX and his brother, Robert d'Artois, carrying the reliquary chasse. Another, there's a scene of procession down here of um, clergy and lay people venerating the crown of thorns situated here. Um, and this particularly nice scene, um, an unusual sort of two-panel depiction which depicts um, Gautier Cornu, the Archbishop of Sens, displaying the crown of thorns uh, flanked by Louis IX and I think probably his mother, Blanche of Castile, who are venerating the crown. Um, and then this appears to be a, a sort of two-part architectural depiction. So they're either perhaps standing on a, um, a, a gallery 
of a chapel, church, possibly a scaffolding that was erected in front of a chapel. And then you've got these little wavy lines here show that um, this is located near uh, a river, so probably the Seine. So we're actually seeing Paris in the Ile de la Cité. The Matins' lessons of the Crown of Thorns liturgy are based closely on the famous account of the, of the Crown's translation written by Gautier Cornu, the Archbishop of Sens, which ascribed the arrival of the Crown of Thorns in France not only to the efforts of Louis IX, but to the worthiness of the French people. Lesson two states, quote, let the Church of Gaul rejoice in these sacred ceremonies and let all the people of the French, without distinction of sex, rank, and even station, resound with equal devotion, for the cause of joy is sufficient to all, end quote. Lesson three continues, quote, let the universal joy be for everyone, because the universal cause is one of joy. This is that splendid festival in which the land of the French receives the most precious gift from God, that most holy crown of thorns, which he has permitted to be placed upon our head. Lesson eight explains that it is France's illustrious history that has determined its special status as the keeper of the crown. Quote, truly, the kingdom of the Franks, long renowned for distinguished deeds, in our time, he has deemed worthy to crown with the crown of his head, with much glory and many honors, end quote. These dual sentiments, that the worthiness of the realm merits its status as the guardian of the crown, and for this reason, the crown's reception is a source of joy for all the French, permeate the liturgical texts. Thus, in glorifying the reception of the crown of thorns, the liturgies also celebrate France and its people. And just as the invocations of Moses, Joshua, David, and Solomon woven throughout the coronation liturgies linked the French monarch with his biblical predecessors, so the recurrent references to France and its people in the Crown of Thorns liturgies shaped a perception of the French as the new Israelites, the heirs to God's chosen people. Celebrating the special worth of the French people thus composed the flip side of celebrating the special worth of the French king, articulating the shared bond between king and subject, and by extension, promoting the public devotion to the king and his monarchic agenda. The liturgies also recount the translation of the crown from Constantinople to France and celebrate France as a physical entity. The second matins lesson offers thanks to God, quote, whose immense goodness has sprinkled this Western world, this Western part of the world and our lives with the splendor of celestial grace, has enriched our land with an incomparable treasure, has accumulated the highest honor to our race and for our realm. Lesson seven links the biblical Holy Land and medieval France in a veritable geography lesson. Quote, just as the Lord Jesus Christ chose the promised land to exhibit the, the mysteries of his redemption, thus he is seen to have specially chosen our Gaul to venerate more devoutly the triumph of his passion so that the name of the Lord may be praised from the rising of the sun to the setting, while from the region of Greece, which is said to be nearer to the east, into Gaul, neighboring on regions of the west, the Lord himself transferred the most holy instruments of his most sacred passion, 
and thus, with shared honors, he made equal the one land to the other." End quote. That God affected this transferal because of his special love of France is a recurrent theme of the liturgies. In the words of one liturgical hymn, quote, the king of heaven sends to the Gauls this sign of honor. He is delighted by this region. He who crowns the kingdom of the Gauls with his own crown, end quote. Paris, the center of the realm and the resting place of the crown of thorns, is singled out for special recognition. As one hymn proclaims, quote, to you, O illustrious city, endowed with every praise, mother of learning, is the crown entrusted, and in you placed, city of Paris, end quote. The ideological force of these texts resided in the degree to which they succeeded in weaving king, country, and subjects into the very fabric of salvation history. This idea is effectively stated in a hymn that follows an extended meditation on the crown of thorns as a symbol of man's sin, a source of Christ's pain, and ultimately of his triumph with the verse, quote, pleasant mysteries are these, but the subject of the joy at hand is to us a history by which France is today powerfully crowned, end quote. Christ's incarnation, passion, and resurrection became tangible through the physical presence of his relics. The acquisition of the crown of thorns and passion relics affected the ultimate fusion of biblical past and historical present. This potent conflation was celebrated in text and image, in complex manipulations of both content and form. The liturgies construct elaborate biblical allusions and metaphors around the crown of thorns, the passion, and the promise of salvation, which are interwoven with contemporary historical references to the crown's translation and the special status of the French people. Rhetorical devices, such as the repetition of the words rex, regnum, and corona, king, realm, and crown, and the use of indicative, subjunctive, and imperative verb forms situate the liturgical discourse in an eternal present. A verse from the, from the hymn King and Pontiff states, quote, the king of mercy confers this crown today upon his own gall, end quote. The annual celebration of this and related feasts ensured the ongoing identification of France as the epicenter of Christian consciousness. Similar techniques of temporal conflation occur in the Saint-Chapelle glass. The repetition of crowns and coronations in the numbers window, for example, testifies to the centrality of this royal symbol within the larger narrative program. Anointing and crowning comprise the two principal components of the French coronation ceremony. Precedent for the king's anointing lay in the biblical examples of priests anointing temporal leaders. Most importantly, the anointing of David by Samuel. Old Testament kings were anointed. They were not crowned. The only biblical king to be crowned was Christ, whose crown consisted not of gold and jewels, but of thorns. The king's crown, then, carried strong Christological associations. These associations are evident in the theme of Christ as the ultimate exemplar of kingship, which is woven throughout the coronation liturgies and kingship literature. In the Saint-Chapelle, such temporal and symbolic conflation occurs not only between Christ and Louis IX, but between Louis IX and his biblical predecessors, whose recurrent coronations cement the visual continuum originating in the scene of Christ crowned with thorns. 
But the coronation scenes press this fusion of biblical past and historical present even further. For not only do they reach back into Old Testament history to crown the kings of Judah with the crown of Christ, they do so in a ceremony lifted directly from the French coronation liturgies. In the liturgies dating from the reign of Louis IX, the crown appears as the final item with which the king is invested. Immediately following his coronation by the archbishop, the king is acclaimed by the 12 peers of France who flank the seated king and extend their arms to support the crown upon his head. This moment is depicted in an illumination from the coronation ordo of 1250. And that's the image here on your left. The similarity between this image and the many coronations of the Saint-Chapelle is striking. In the chapel's coronations, two or more figures flank the seated kings and stretch out their arms toward his crown and in some cases toward his scepter or throne as well. During the coronation ceremony, the peers held forth their hands to support the crown upon the king's head immediately after his crowning and continued supporting it as he was led to the throne. While the peers provided practical assistance in sustaining the heavy ceremonial crown upon the king's head, the symbolism of their action was even more crucial. The peers of France comprised the king's major vassals, and after the king, the most powerful men in the realm. By physically supporting the crown, the peers pledged to support the king. This gesture, in other words, connoted an act of homage, expressing the relationship between the king and his vassals. The repetition of these scenes in the Saint-Chapelle thus constructs a visual argument that draws on the French coronation ceremony to effectively conflate biblical, Christological, and contemporary kingship into one resonant construct. The Saint-Chapelle proclaims the conflation of biblical and contemporary history in other ways as well. Robert Branner argued that the saints depicted in the painted medallions encircling the chapel corresponded to those whose relics were housed in churches in and around Paris. And these are you have a detail here. These are located here on the, it's called the dado level, and these medallions um, appear here around the chapel. Before the crown of thorns arrived in Paris, Louis IX commanded these very churches to join the procession with their own relics. The medallions may thus commemorate the first procession of the crown of thorns into Paris in 1239, and in a symbolic sense, to perpetually reenact that procession within the chapel. At the same time, the saints functioned as witnesses to and participants in the reenactment of Christ's passion and resurrection celebrated in the mass. Thus, like the translation liturgies, these images interweave tangible references to France and its history into the timeless scheme of salvation. Much the same may be said of the apostle statues situated around the dado. And again, this is a detail. These are located here. They occupy this sort of liminal space between the, the dado and the, the windows. Like the saints depicted in the painted medallions, the apostles function as witnesses to and participants in the passion and resurrection of Christ realized in the Eucharist. Each of the apostles carries a disc decorated with a ceremonial cross of consecration, 
which the priest typically traced on the walls of a new church as part of the dedication ceremony. Daniel Weiss observed that this unusual iconographic detail served to, quote, confer special status on the French king and his new chapel, end quote, by making the apostles active participants in the chapel's consecration. Weiss also argued for interpreting the tribute screen and baldachin which supported the reliquary containing the crown of thorns and passion relics as a symbolic rendering of the throne of Solomon and the Solomonic porch of justice. The reliquary itself, which housed the physical proof of Christ's incarnation, Weiss identified as the Ark of the New Covenant. Together, the ensemble symbolized the fusion of Old and New Testaments, thereby establishing the Saint-Chapelle as the new Temple of Solomon and France, by extension, as the new Holy Land. This fusion is articulated with even greater specificity in the Saint-Chapelle windows, where similar compositions sorry, are employed to depict the biblical warrior Joshua carrying the Ark of the Covenant across the Jordan River and Louis IX carrying the crown of thorns into Paris. And the, uh, the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant, um, according to the Bible, contained the tablets upon which the Ten Commandments were written, um, Aaron's rod, and uh, manna. Weiss's interpretation also accords well with the temporal and symbolic conflations affected throughout the translation liturgies. Indeed, a near parallel sentiment is expressed in a hymn entitled Good and Happy Word, which exclaims, quote, hail the crown of redemption, the crown of the true Solomon, the great gift among great gifts, the protection of the French, end quote. If the Saint-Chapelle and its liturgies effectively transformed France, her king, and her subjects into the new holy land and new chosen people, what of the biblical holy land, which in the 13th century languished in Christian perception under Muslim rule? To a great king and great people come great responsibilities, and Louis IX perceived the liberation of the Holy Land as the raison d'etre of his long reign. While the crown of thorns proffered the foremost single symbol of kingship, it was the true cross that composed the foremost symbol of military victory. This identification accrued both from the cross as the symbol of Christ's victory over death and its role in the legend of Constantine whose embrace of the cross as military device secured his victory over a rival imperial claimant. Louis IX implemented several new liturgical feasts after acquiring a large portion of the true cross in 1241. These new liturgies emphasized the cross's significance along with other relics such as the Holy Lance, a piece of which Louis had also acquired, as weapons of Christ and elaborated the linkage between these relics and France's divinely ordained duty to liberate the Holy Land. Two themes in the Saint-Chapelle windows provide a counterpoint to this liturgical emphasis. The repetition of Israelites battling their pagan enemies and recurrent depictions of those enemies engaged in acts of idolatry. In 13th century France, the biblical leader Joshua emerged as a singular exemplar of holy war. The Saint-Chapelle devotes an entire window to Joshua, thus offering an especially apt mirror of Louis IX's crusade aspirations. 
Cecilia Gaposchkin has elucidated Joshua's centrality as a model of holy war who enabled the numerous conquests of the Israelites over their pagan enemies. Gaposchkin describes the story of Joshua as, quote, a kind of promise of success that colored Louis's expectations for his own crusade and offered Louis a model for his own role in biblical and salvation history, end quote. Indeed, several factors specifically link Joshua and Louis within the chapel. The windows in which Joshua is featured appear above and adjacent to the king's niche, where he sat during services. And the king's niche is located right here. Um, directly above him is the, the numbers window, and Joshua appears sort of in the latter portions of this window, and then in the neighboring, the Joshua window is right next to it. Um, and this is a detail of the king's niche. This is also the window where it has four successive rows of coronations of all the, um, all the leaders of the tribes of Israel and a few extra people for good measure are crowned in that window. Despite its extravagant size, the window depicts only the first 10 of the biblical book's 24 chapters. This is the Joshua window. That is, those chapters recounting, specifically recounting Joshua's military victories. Joshua's defeat of the idolatrous Canaanites and Amorites paralleled Louis' aspiration to liberate the Holy Land from Islam. The identification of Muslims as idolaters and infidels in medieval Western culture made these associations particularly apt. An image from the Isaiah window depicts a group of idolaters worshiping before an idol labeled Muhammad. And this inscription is not very legible anymore, but before the restoration, um, it could be seen quite clearly uh, located right, right here. Joshua sports a crown, identifying him as a biblical king in contradiction to the biblical text. Finally, the Joshua window appears diagonally opposite the so-called relics window, with its scenes of Louis IX participating in the translation of the crown of thorns and holding aloft the relic of the true cross. The Joshua and relics window share the same armature pattern. The only exact repetition of armature design in the chapel, and the, the armature is actually the iron this iron apparatus, um, which is actually physically connected to the windows, and then the individual panels of glass are set into those. This technical detail makes the panels themselves physically interchangeable, and the windows boast numerous repetitions of comparable scenes, such as battles, and Louis carrying the, cross, the crown of thorns reliquary as a mirror of Joshua carrying the ark. The crown of thorns liturgy explicitly identified the crown as the, the sorry, uh, the crown of thorns liturgy explicitly identified the crown of thorns as the modern day counterpart of the Ark of the Covenant. In the visual rhetoric of the Saint-Chapelle then, Louis IX's identification as the new Joshua was palpably realized. The window in which Louis IX's aspirations as model king and crusader appear most overtly is the so-called relics window 
which recounts the participation of Louis IX, his brother and mother, in the translation of the relics from Constantinople to Paris. These scenes have long been identified as donor portraits, an interpretation based largely on the window's 19th century restoration as a history of the passion relics. My study of the pre-restoration window, however, has led me to a different identification. Rather than a history of the passion relics, I believe the window originally contained a history of the kings of France, designed in such a way as to mirror the royal themes articulated throughout the biblical windows. Um, and I know these are hard to make out, um, but effectively what I did when the, um, this restoration, which was supposed to be a new scientific um, model restoration, um, comprised a lot of documentation so that the restoration process could actually be followed. And one of the most amazing things that was done was that these full-scale watercolor tracings were made of each panel of glass, um, documenting its condition prior to restoration and then also documenting its post-restoration condition. And in many cases, in the relics window in particular, a lot of these, um, a lot of the medieval panels were not reinstalled. They were, for the most part, subsequently lost. But these watercolor tracings were painstakingly preserved. And so um, I effectively used those and looked to see what actually was in the window before the restoration happened. So what you see here are um, watercolor, these watercolor tracings showing what the panels looked like when they were taken out of the windows. And that's why they're in some cases missing pieces of glass, for example. Um, and then what you see here is my sort of photo montage reconstruction where I tried to sort of put back in what was in the medieval window. I took out all the new panels and put in, um, based on these tracings, the uh, medieval panels. Each of the themes I've identified in the biblical narratives resonates in this window, which I have proposed renaming the royal window, and, and which in a shameless act of self-promotion, I will use that title um, for the remainder of my talk. Like the Old Testament windows, the royal window depicts crowned figures engaged in battles, scenes that could document either the deeds of a single leader or the exploits of multiple kings whose stories like those of Moses, Joshua, and David, are realized as a constellation of like activities. Um, and I know you're probably wondering, well, these figures don't appear to be crowned. But um, again, this is actually a, a nice color image of these watercolor tracings. They're really quite extraordinary in terms of their quality. Um, and you can sort of tell based on, even though crowns don't appear anymore, based on the lead lines, um, that there were crowns originally. The king's obligation to his subjects, which the biblical windows articulate in animated conversations between Old Testament leaders and Israelites, finds a counterpart in scenes of Louis IX negotiating the acquisition of the crown of thorns, and in scenes of the crown's translation, an event in which uh, king and subjects participated. With the exception of those panels relevant to the translation of the crown of thorns by Louis IX, the kings who populate the royal window elude specific identification. Comparison with textual narratives involving the kings of France, however, offers some, ex some intriguing parallels. Since the mid-12th century, 
the biblical exemplars enjoined on the king's behalf were supplemented with historical kings whose military prowess and model rules were extolled in royal biographies and popular tales. Much of this literature focused on figures such as Clovis, Charlemagne, Charles the Bald, Louis VI, and Philip Augustus. Any of these figures could have been seen in the 13th century window, which prior to restoration foregrounded two themes, warfare and the crown of thorns. The former could have referenced any number of French campaigns, particularly those of recent memory, such as the Albigensian Crusade, in which Louis IX's father, Louis VIII, had died a martyr's death. Scenes depicting the translation of the crown of thorns could also have evoked earlier translation ceremonies in which the kings of France participated. These included Charlemagne's fabled journey to the Holy Land, where he procured passion relics, or Philip Augustus's acquisition of passion relics, which he gave to the Abbey of Saint-Denis in 1205. When the Saint-Chapelle was consecrated in 1248, on the eve of Louis' departure on crusade, these two themes would certainly have melded in popular perceptions of Louis IX as the new David, or the new Joshua, destined to liberate the Holy Land. Daniel Weiss has said that the public ceremonies which attended the arrival of the crown of thorns and passion relics in France were, quote, above all a means of shaping consensus about the emergence of the Franks as the new chosen people and that of their king as leader of the Christian world, end quote. In the Saint-Chapelle windows, that consensus is articulated in the seamless narrative presentation of Louis IX and his subjects as they are to the Old Testament leaders and Israelites. This privileged alliance between king and subject was renewed each year during Easter week when Louis IX himself displayed the, crown, the passion relics in the Saint-Chapelle to the public. That annual event, together with the many additional feasts and processions of the relics throughout the year, engendered a collective memory which fueled popular perceptions of the special status of France and its king at home and abroad. There can be little doubt, as Professor Block was uh, saying this afternoon in class, um, there can be little doubt that Louis IX participated in the construction of his own saintly persona. The rapidity with which his saintliness was reified in text and image may be related to the ways in which Louis' sanctity was conceptually framed in his own lifetime. It thus seems appropriate to conclude this discussion by looking at the most important of the liturgies composed in honor of Louis' canonization, the one adopted at the Saint-Chapelle, which added yet another layer to the discourse between the chapel and its visitors. Even a cursory examination of the office, the liturgical office, entitled Louis, Glory of Rulers, reveals close connection both to the Crown of Thorns liturgy and to the Saint-Chapelle's decorative program. Cecilia Gaposchkin found that this liturgy contains more uses of the words rex, regnum, and corona, king, realm, and crown, than any other office dedicated to Saint-Louis. Gaposchkin argues persuasively that Louis, glory of rulers, was composed at the behest of Louis IX's grandson, Philip IV, who had overseen Louis's canonization. Her insightful analysis reveals that Louis, glory of rulers, the office destined to become the most popular, was also, ironically, the one, quote, least specific to the person of Louis, least tied to the hagiographical tradition which had established his sainthood, and least explicitly representative of the sanctity which the canonization process had approved. Um, 
so perhaps not the Louis that Joinville would have would recognize in his biography. Rather than focusing on his piety and crusader's death, Kapashkin characterizes the theme of this liturgy as, quote, kingship and rule in conformity with Christ, an articulation of royal sanctity, sanctity rooted in the quality of rule and its relationship to Christ, sanctity specific to kings, end quote. In Louis Glory of Rulers, one finds all the regal themes visualized throughout the Saint-Chapelle. Further, like the chapel's decoration and liturgies for the crown of thorns and true cross, Louis' glory of rulers extends the sanctity of Louis' kingship to the realm of France. The liturgy's opening prayer addresses the French people directly, quote, Rejoice, O kingdom of France, for whom the king of glory gave such an excellent gift that you have your own king and aid, patron in the heavens. While he was alive and ruled the crown, like a king, he defended you. Made now a participant of the glory, he lovingly strives for your pardon. People, yes, the French people, not like a foreign people, give praise up to Christ, in whose palace you rejoice under the protection of your former king." End quote. The identification of Louis IX as the most Christian king and his subjects as the new chosen people attains in this office its logical outcome. Louis, whose sanctity was rooted in his kingship, reigns now in heaven as the special advocate of the French. I believe that the iconic status the Saint-Chapelle has attained in French art was achieved largely through the dynamic exchange that occurred between its ideological program and the religious spectacles that transpired within its walls. Both the Saint-Chapelle and its liturgies invoke a comparable biblical caste and utilized a comparable repertoire of rhetorical devices to address a similar constellation of regal themes. Both the Saint-Chapelle and its liturgies collapse time so as to situate contemporary events in the continuum of salvation history. Both reach beyond royal encomium to include France and its people in the uniquely sacral orbit of French kingship. And just as the associations built upon the repeated scenes of coronations, battles, and processions became more persuasive with each iteration, so the recurrent performance of the liturgies cemented contemporary perceptions of the uniquely holy status of king and realm. By the 14th century, when Louis, glory of rulers, proclaimed what Kapashkin has called, quote, the regalization of Louis' sanctity, end quote, the spectrum of associations surrounding Louis IX, the crown of thorns, and the crown of France was fused into a single powerful construct. This is evident in Philip IV's statement to Pope Clement V following his translation of Louis' skull to the Saint-Chapelle in 1306, in which Philip justified the move by professing his belief that Louis' head, quote, should rest in the chapel which we call the head of the whole kingdom of France, end quote. Much has been written about the means by which Louis IX sought to promote the sacral underpinnings of a French rule. In the exemplary quality of his life, Louis IX embodied the spectrum of model associations which the biblical heroes of the coronation liturgies proffered and with which Louis himself was credited in the liturgies devoted to the crown of thorns and ultimately his own canonization. Something comparable to the complex fusion of past and present affected in the person of Louis IX 
occurred also in the fusion of biblical past and historical present found in the Saint-Chapelle. Celebrated in word and image, in performance and space, this royal discourse constructed a powerful aura of sanctity shared ultimately by king and kingdom alike. Thank you. The Frankie Lectures are made possible by the generosity of Richard and Barbara Frankie and are intended to present important topics in the humanities to a wide and general audience. This term, the series explores the making and meaning of the High Middle Ages, with the Gothic Cathedral serving as a window on the religious, intellectual, and literary culture of the times. It is organized in conjunction with the Yale College Seminar, taught by R. Howard Block, Sterling Professor of French and Chair of the Humanities Program. Alice Jordan spoke on April 6, 2010, at the Whitney Humanities Center.